Hebrews. We're going back to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're tired of Hebrews chapter 11, um, sorry, we're going to be in there again today, and we're going to be in there next week and probably the week after that as well, at least parts of it. And what we're talking about is faith. Last week we ended up with the fact that faith is not a new doctrine. It was not a New Testament doctrine versus an Old Testament doctrine. It's um, the proof of faith we talked about is, is how a person's, is, um, sorry, of the proof of faith is a person's obedience to God through his word. And then having faith in God is as simple as recognizing that he will do what he says he will do. And we can look back at his promises over a long period of time, all of history, and see that he's always kept his promises. He made creation, he made it very good, he made it functional and complete, it was ready to go. And, uh, and we can look at creation today and still see it in operation, see that it still works, that it's functional, that it's operational. Um, and then we ended with faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our faith has grown as we hear God's word and we develop as believers. I said, where does faith come from? It comes from reading his word. Uh, how do we live it? We, be, we live it by being obedient. And how do we maintain a strong faith? By reading and trusting in his proven promises. We can see his promises. And then on Wednesday night, if you were here, you heard that we were talking about that, uh, that next verse there where it said, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made by, of things which are visible. God spoke into the existence all of creation, and we can see that today. We can, we can experience it today. We can go out there and breathe air that's been cleaned by the trees and, and all those different things. All of creation proclaims his name. And we have to go through these kind of hoops to convince ourselves that there is no God because if we look around us, uh, it's obvious that someone created everything and that he spoke everything from nothing. He spoke it into existence. So that was good. If you missed that Wednesday, um, I have the notes on that. If you're interested in that, it'd be really good to just read that, look those verses up on your own to kind of dwell on that. And what we're doing here is if we look at Hebrews, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, he goes back to Genesis right here quite a bit. And I'm actually going to skip two men, but he keeps going back to Genesis and, and pointing to these these Hebrew people, uh, that nothing has changed. The way to access God is through faith. And so um, I want to just continue in this and keep reminding you of our need for faith. It's important to remember that faith is not just this Old Testament way of getting access to God, but it worked uh, for salvation or whatever, but it works in the New Testament as well. It's by grace you've been saved, it says in the New Testament, not the Old Testament. It's by grace you've been saved, through faith, not of yourself, gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It comes by faith in God. Salvation comes by faith in God. Faith is demonstrated by obedience to his word. We demonstrate our faithfulness by our action. Okay, I have faith in God. He tells me to go, make disciples, teaching, baptizing, and so on. So I go, my, my faithfulness could be shown by going to Northside Apartments and being faithful to present the gospel to those people there, or to go pick these little girls up, or to go to the the uh, HUD housing over here, whatever. Or just as you're in your work, as you're in your way, as you're doing your thing, as you speak the gospel to other people, that demonstrates faithfulness. The same power that saved Abel and, and uh, well, he's, he's the first one that believes by faith, so the same power that saves Abel is the same power that saves us, the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. He heard God speak, God says, make a, make a sacrifice, do it in this way. Abel says, okay, I can do that. I heard him speak. I put that into action. I make the sacrifice. I build the altar. I make the sacrifice. And God says, you're faithful. You're in there. You're one of mine. So faith in God is demonstrated by a life of holy living. 
as in different from the world. And we're going to see that about Abraham today. So if you looked at these first three guys that were called faithful, uh, Abel, Enoch, and um, Noah, uh, you would see that they, they gained this um, moniker, faithful. They gained this nickname, faithful, by their actions because they believed God and then they acted on it. Uh, Abel lived a life of faith. As short of life it was, or as long until Cain killed him, he did it by God saying, you do a sacrifice, you do it this way, and he does it. Uh, Enoch, he does a walk of faith. It says he walked with God. He wasn't, or he was, and then he wasn't. He's walking along one day, and God says, you know what? I'm not going to make you pass through the gate of death. I'm going to instead just take you from here and into the heavenlies, and that's what he does. Noah, he lives out a life of, of, of working, 120 years of faithfulness, of work, of development of this ark. And God says, okay, Noah, you heard my word, and you obeyed me. I said, build an ark. You built the ark. Um, enter in. So now we get to this post-flood man. He's the first one labeled in this list of <clears throat> this list of faithful men or faithful people, I should say. He's the first one post-flood. It's Abraham. And he begins a different style of relationship of sorts with God. Something happened between Noah and Abram that never happened before or since, and it's called the Tower of Babel. You might be thinking the flood because it destroyed the earth and gets rebooted. But about a I don't know, ever how many hundred years later, I don't want to take a guess there, I should know, but it kind of slips my mind, a thousand years maybe, more or less, from Noah to the Tower of Babel. And so at, at the Tower of Babel, God said, he gives men three directives, we talked about this a hundred times, be fruitful and multiply, we don't do that. We take birth control and we kill our babies by abortion. He says, uh, man take dominion over the earth, and what we do, we go in our house and we let the earth take dominion over us. And then he, sa and then he puts the, the, the husband-wife authority structure in place, and we don't do that either. And so we, we, we mess up all of those things. But in this particular case, he said, spread out after the ark, spread out and cover the whole earth. And what do men do? They all bunch up together and they think we're going to build this tower. And not only will we take dominion over the earth in this region, but we're going to take dominion over the heavenlies as well. And God said, man, once these jokers put their mind to it and they're all speaking the same way, there is nothing that they won't be able to accomplish. So apparently, they would have figured out some means of crossing over this supernatural boundary that God has put in place to separate men from the heavenlies. And they were obviously working, or apparently working on something like that, and so God says, we're going to confuse their languages. And at that moment, men could no longer access God like they could before. Not only that, they couldn't access each other. We're just like, the Bible says that just like in the days of Noah, so it'll be when the Son of Man returns. Okay? Just like in the days of Noah. What happened in the days of Noah? People were given in marriage and different things, but they all spoke one language, just like in the days of Noah. We're just now getting to that point again where all men can be heard, basically, through one language, and even if it's through a computer but, um, or through these different Google Translation-type devices, and I saw a device recently, that, uh, and they're getting better and better and better by the day. You put it in your ear, and I speak Spanish to you, and you hear it in English, and you speak, and I hear you in my native language. They're, they're making that now. We're going to be like the days of Noah. We're all men. And so what happens, what happens when that happens? <clears throat> when all men can speak the same language, what happens is technology goes like this. 
That's why, that's why we got this technological advances that we got going on now, because all men are speaking the same language. They may be doing it through a computer, but I can start something here. Chinese man over there can continue to develop it, while Korean man, Japanese man can continue to develop, Russian man, whatever. And we can all just build on the technology, and so the technology really starts to happen. That's what was happening at the Tower of Babel. You got a thousand years of men speaking the same language. They got all the technology that they brought from before the flood to that point, and man, they are making it happen. And they find all these archaeological things. This is a side note just for you, but they're finding these archaeological things they cannot really describe. And a lot of them have to do with power, like um, uh, not like electrical power necessarily, but types of power that runs machinery. And, they, and they're just now kind of figuring out that that's what these are. There's a bunch of circles in a place in Africa. And they got these channels going off from them, these rock channels. And it was some kind of power. And a guy went over there and tested it with a, um, like a, uh, radiological kind of meter like you would at Watts Bar or whatever. And, uh, I mean, it's like it's like uh, a thousand times more powerful down in these holes, this electronic flow, than it is up uh, electromagnetic flow, than it is just like a half mile away. They found some sort of power source. They were powering something. They don't know what they were powering. Or these crystals in the tops of these pyramids, same thing. They used to think it was something they were worshiping. Now they believe it was a way of communication, like a crystal radio set and that kind of thing. There was a lot of technology that's been lost over time. And it was lost around the time of the Tower of Babel. What happened was, as men got their languages separated, they no longer can converse with each other. They lost the technology. They lost the metallurgy. They, went in, they lost the history and they lost the spirituality that came with being able to converse with one another. So now we're all going spread out across the globe like they should have done in the first place. They could have maintained a similar language. God confused their languages, so it takes men longer to accomplish things because they don't speak the same language. Okay. What also happened at that time is it looks, it appears by the way we read the word, the way the word reads, that God begins to speak to men in a different way. Although he does speak to Abraham very similarly to how he spoke to Noah in the pre-flood men, somehow he was more approachable, more accessible. It says that he spoke to Abraham and said, he spoke to Moses and said, he spoke to Abel and said, he spoke to Adam or Enoch or these other people and he said. So in a verbal way, however he did it, it was in a verbal way and from this time of Abraham Moses, from there on, it gets less and less. The voice of the Lord is heard less and less. And his word is written down, and it's passed down through the ages through his word now. I'm not saying God can't speak to you in that way. I'm saying, in general, he does not speak to men in this way any longer. But with Abraham and all these faithful men here in general, especially these early ones, um, uh, they, they uh, hear from God in somehow a more audible way than we hear now. It does seem that in Abraham's case in particular, that he keeps running into God in visions, in conversations, and in actual, the angel of the Lord appears to him in a number of times, okay? And, um, and so, but there's also these long periods of time in Abram's life or Abraham's life, same guy, where there is no word from the Lord. And that's where faith comes in. Faith is difficult when you're in dry times. It does become more difficult, and I talked about this last week. In the dry times when faith is difficult, go back to the Word, and your faith will be renewed. But what we tend to do is when difficult times come, we tend to go away from the Word. I know of people in this very fellowship that as hard times come, instead of coming to church and being around other believers, instead of reading the Word, instead of praying more, they pray less, they come around less, they read less. 
and then the difficulty becomes worse. And they can't, they can't figure out how those work. As the pressure comes, it should drive you closer to the Father and not further away. So, um, that being the case, there's long periods of time in Abraham's life here where there is no daily bread. We don't know, but I'm, I've, I've read a lot of stuff like about Job and that kind of thing, where something was passed on. It was either passed on orally or through writing to these men. And Job and Abraham uh, may have overlapped. Job may have been before. But, uh, but it's, it's not long after the flood, but something may have been transported on the ark. Could have been, could have been books, who, who we don't know. But some kind of information was brought from before the flood to after the flood through the ark, even if it was just by word of mouth through Noah and his, and his sons. In that case, these guys knew what God required of them, and these guys were obedient. Job was obedient. But you notice Job isn't in this list of faithful. Did you ever know that on there? Kind of discouraging. Poor Job. After that whipping, he doesn't even get on the faithful list. You know what I'm saying? But, uh, but Abraham is. So somehow he knew what it was that God called him to do in a daily walk, and he was doing that. So Abraham, his name means exalted father, born about 2,000 years, 2,100 years before Christ. And then later his name gets changed to Abraham, father of many nations, what it means. First one meant exalted father. Um, and uh, you can see that Genesis 12.1 and Hebrews 11.8. And in Hebrews 12.1 is where we first see God speak to Abram. He calls him out of a land and he calls him to a new place. And it's this new long-term relationship and Abraham's called to Bethel, Beth-el, house of bread. Uh, it's the house of God, the house of bread. It's where God is. And Abraham right off goes there, called out by God. He goes there and he builds an altar. Um, so he begins this long-term relationship with the one, turn, uh, one true God. And he goes and during different times. God doesn't, this is the thing about Abraham. He's not completely obedient in his life. Things get a little difficult. We start seeing a little famine. Where does he go? He goes to Egypt. Things get a little difficult. Where does he go? He goes to this, this Hittite area. You know, Different things happen, and he doesn't stay right where he's called to stay. He's a migratory guy. He's like a, a dove. Dove season open today, by the way. Most wonderful time of the year for me and those others with shotguns. So I have to call that. Uh, just give them a plug there. He's uh, migratory like a dove, old Abraham. He's moving around, even when God doesn't call him to. But God continually calls him back to Bethel. Continually calls him back to there. So, um, and each time he goes back, he makes another significant sacrifice to Jehovah God. And in Genesis 13, 4, you see this line more than once. And it says, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Over and over, when Abram's called back to this place, it says, and Abram called on the name of the Lord. Something happens. Abram calls on the name of the Lord. Something else happened. The Lord spoke to Abraham and said, and then two, two, three sentences later it says, and Abram called on the name of the Lord. So I think it's, it'd be great for us to spend a, a large amount of time there on Father Abraham and, and learn to, to kind of really discern all the, all the parallels of his life and the life of, uh, of the body of Christ and, and all the things that came together under him. But uh, I want to look at one particular event in the life of Abraham, and it has to do with the sacrifice of his only begotten son, Isaac. So I want you, I'm going to read it first here in Hebrews 11, starting at verse 17, and then we're going to go to Genesis. So Hebrews 11, 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, 
from which he also received him in a figurative sense. God moves in a sovereign way that we just can't grasp. And Miss Whitney, I'm sorry about your friend there, um, this, this man that David was talking about. He went to the hospital, a uh, relatively healthy man, 60-something years old, 60, young 60, 65. A healthy man, uh, you get a heart transplant, and, and within a week he, he passes away. We don't understand why God does what he does. He gives and he takes away, and we say, well, you know, how could he do that? I mean, Job had to struggle with the same question. We always struggle with these questions of suffering and, and death and things like that. But the reality is God has a plan that's bigger than we can understand or grasp. And with Abraham um, he, or, or anyone, he can take a common person like David. David was a common guy, and he can make him a king. He can take a common man like Abram, who was obviously an intelligent man. Actually, just another side note, the um, Egyptians believed that Abraham brought the, the uh, mathematical ideas from Ur the Chaldees that allowed them to build the pyramids. He's a, he was a tremendous man, um, and he accomplished a lot in his life. He lived a long time, 180 years, more or less, but uh, 175 years, I guess. But uh, he accomplished a lot in his life, but he was just a nobody from nowhere, and God used him because he was obedient. So it takes a humble man like Abram from a far country uh, to be used by God to ultimately be called the exalted father of three uh, world religions, the three greatest world religions, uh, Judaism, uh, Christianity, and, and the Muslim uh, religion. Do what? Yeah, Islam, yeah. And, um, and the one thing I thought was funny, Jade, you might think it's funny, but it actually says in Hebrews 13, it says Abram the Hebrew. And that falls before Abram has Ishmael. So the Arabs are all down on Jews and whatnot, but they're from Father Abram the Hebrew. So that's just a little side joke for you. But all the stuff that's going on with, uh, with Abraham there, um, he, he came from an average beginning, but 4,000 years later, people are still honoring this man. He's, uh, he's exalted because of his obedience to the call. The issues of the Middle East today can be directly traced back to Abraham through Isaac and Ishmael. One of them was called the chosen people, Isaac. The other one was called a wild ass of a man. The onager is some kind of wild donkey that was there. They're still wild asses of men, the Arabs. They're still wild as can be. They still, it says that he will constantly be in war with his brethren. It's his brothers that he's killing. Still today, they're still that people. And even in this, this is a promise of God that reminds us that God keeps his promises. He says, I'm telling you, I'm going to make this wild bunch of people and they're going to be wild forever and they're going to war with everyone around them. And we can look at the Muslim world today and, or the Arabic world today and say, them wild people are still there. And they did a blood test on some uh, people a while back. I, I, I uh, saw this. They had a number of people in a room and they did a, a blood sampling, a DNA sampling of them. And before they started, they asked some questions. You know, I think I might have told you this before. But, uh, you, know, you know, what kind of people do you hate? And one guy's like, you know, I don't like Muslims. And the other guy's like, I don't like Jews, you know. Well, they take all their blood, and the Muslim and Jew that didn't like each other, they were uh, seventh cousins. So that really, or no, they were fourth cousins. They were really closely related. But the reality is, as they went back in the DNA for these people, that DNA just gets closer and closer and closer as they give it. They're the same person. They're half-brothers from Abraham. But they war against each other because God said they would. Um, actually, when you see Isaac and Ishmael come together for the death of their father, Abraham, it, it looks like they come together peacefully to bury Abraham. And that's kind of interesting. But uh, anyway, from there on, they're, they're war against each other. They warred against the Jews when they came back into the promised land. It's what they do. God called it, 
And uh, they were ordained thousands of years ago to war against each other, and they will until the day that the Lord returns. So let's look at Abraham's faith in Genesis chapter 22. And let's see if he's worthy to be called faithful as the Bible calls him faithful. So go to Abraham's faith, uh, Genesis 22, 1 through 19. We're going to read the whole thing. It's a, it's a great a great tale, and we're going to see if, uh, if we can see Christ in this picture at all, too. Are you there, Genesis 22? Now, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, Abraham says, here I am, and he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of the young men with him and Isaac his son and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac his son and he took the fire in his hand and the knife and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together, and then they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up, a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and you have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall, pos <clears throat> and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to the young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Okay. So let's, let's, let's look at this real fast. And before I do that, I've got to say that without Abraham's faithful obedience right here, he messes up a future plan. It takes faithful obedience right here. God had a supernatural plan for the future that's going to take all these elements of this story and put them into play. And it's going to happen with Christ on the cross. But if Abraham does what Moses did, then we got a problem. You remember Moses two different times was told, the first time he's told to strike the rock. He strikes the rock and the water comes out. The second time God says, speak to the rock. But Moses strikes the rock, and God punishes him severely. Why does he punish him severely? Because it messes up the future picture that God was demonstrating right there. Strike the rock, that's Christ on the cross, his sacrifice. But there's no longer a need for sacrifice. Now we can just speak to the rock for salvation. Right? There's no longer a need for sacrifice. The sacrifice has been made. But Moses messed it up. He struck the rock twice. The rock's already been struck. 
So by his disobedience, he messes up a picture in the future. And that's what the Old Testament is. It's a picture of something coming in the future to the Jews. You got to wait. The Messiah's coming. It's going to look like this picture I'm showing you right now. It's going to look like this down the road. So it's important for this to make any sense in the future, Abraham has to do what God told him to do. And the first thing he did was he sends him to a particular place. He sends him to Mount Moriah. It's 22 verse 2. He says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And actually, this is on Mount Moriah. And we actually, you can actually go to this place today. If you notice the word, the place, is used a number of times in this scripture. I saw it at least three times. He calls it the place which God had told him. He saw the place afar off when they came to the place of which God had sent him and so on. It's a particular place. And today there is a place and it's called the Dome of the Rock. And under the Dome of the Rock is the altar that Abraham offered Isaac upon. And it's right there on what mountain you reckon? It's on Mount Moriah. It's on Mount Moriah. The actual altar place is on Mount Moriah. Abraham had to go to Mount Moriah. It's the place God had ordained 2,000 years before Christ came, and it's still there today. You can go look at it. It's still there. So, uh, so this precise place on Mount Moriah, 22 verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took two of the young men, and Isaac his son, he split the wood, and he went to the place of which God had told him, to a precise place. Why was it important that Abraham get this right? Because it's foreshadowing the Messiah to come who's going to be sacrificed on the same place. The other only begotten son. The only other one that's ever called the only begotten son. Why would he call Isaac the only begotten son? He's the son of promise. Christ is the son of promise. He's a promised future coming son. It's the same picture there's a lot of parallels between these two. I think Dave might have mentioned that a couple weeks ago, but there's a number of parallels between these two. So Jesus is going to be killed on the same mountain, sacrificed in the same place as the only begotten son, just like Isaac was. Uh, the next one is Isaac, like Christ, went willingly with his father or for his father. He was willing, just like Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the ladder, do anything to him. I know since... I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son. Uh, verse 12. The next one is God provides the sacrifice when we're obedient. Um, Abraham, before he goes on the mountain, recognizes that this is going to be a bad day, but that, but that this is the son of promise and God is going to provide a resurrection. He's got in his mind that I can, I can kill this guy, but God said that future generations are coming from this boy. So I don't know what all that means, but if he's telling me to go up here and shed his blood, then that's what I'm going to do because future generations come from this boy. He's going to be resurrected. In fact, he actually says to those, to those guys that came, uh, uh, what does it say? Wait here, uh, sorry, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. This boy's coming back. He's, he's going to live. So even if I had to kill him up here, he's coming back. Where's the lamb, Daddy? I don't know. But you're coming back with me. The, the Lord promised that. The Lord provides the sacrifice. And the very next one is the, there's going to be a resurrection. He told, Jesus told the disciples, I'm going to be back. 
and they sat there and watched him die on the cross and cried like babies and ran like girls and escaped and hid. Sorry, girls, that was a bad slide. I shouldn't have said that. Ran like little children, not brave women. Ran away like little children, fearful. And he's like, I'm going to be back. Give it three days, man. You can go without me for three days, can't you? I'm going to be back. It's the same picture. And then it says the Lord will provide. Or it shall be provided. If you read what it says, or Jehovah Jireh, that's a lot of people like to claim that. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. One time, I think I told, I don't know, I told Warren this maybe one time. But, um, you know, Crossville was somewhat of a dangerous place for black people back in the day. And it's still not the best place. They, they, a lot of people give them a hard time. And when I was at the motel, this, this older black lady and a bunch of teenagers broke down up there in her Lincoln Town car. And they needed a transmission. And they, I told them where to go with the transmission. Well, then they're on foot. And, um, and they said, well, we're going to walk to town and do this thing. And, and uh, I said, ah, that's probably not the best call. For one thing, town's a long way. And, and it's just, you know, you're just putting yourself in, in danger you don't need to, you know. I didn't tell her the whole story. I said, well, I'll take your ride wherever you, wherever you want to go. And she goes, why the Lord, he always provide a ram in the thicket. <laughs> so I was the, the, the ram in the thicket for that lady and, and took her around with you. But he does. Those people had faith in God, and they knew that God would care for them. A really another good example is Pastor Elias. He's just like, we, everything we do, man, it's just, you're doing it by the seat of your pants, and the Lord always provides a ram in the thicket. We're fixing to get arrested in Bolivia, and he goes up there and starts telling them what he's going to do and where he's going to do it, and they're just like, well, yeah, just go ahead. I'm like, what the, how'd you do that? The Lord always provides a ram in the thicket, son. So anyway, so he provides the ram in the thicket, and I got to tell you, and I'm not ready to tell you that, but he provides the ram in the thicket. It shall be provided. It, it implies that something will be provided as a sacrifice in the future. It shall be provided. What shall be provided? I'm going to call this place, it shall be provided. What's it? Who's it? Where is it? And then the last thing is, all nation, nations shall be blessed because of your obedience. Uh, 22, 18 it says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Back here in 13, I told you his name is Abram the Hebrew. When it comes down to it, any, any one of you men in here, if you ask the question, anyone in here ask the question, you know, if it comes down to it, and it's my family versus the Smith family, who am I going to side with? There's more Smiths here than Browns, but, but we're a durable people. So you have to fight for it, Daryl. No, but when it comes down to it, we always, it's always our family first, right? We always put our family first. We should. Huh? Daryl, me and Daryl are going to be fighting after the service today. But uh, it, it always comes down to family first, right? And here God is saying, Abraham, because of your faithfulness, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. And because of his obedience in this day, putting this picture together for us, Christ dies in the future, and by his death, all men can be saved. All men that would can be saved. To the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. But when the Jew rejects Christ, he comes to us. It's, it's all you want. It's like a buffet, a Christ buffet, all you can eat. He came to us, all nations. We are the nations. Whenever you see nations in the Bible, he's not necessarily, he's almost never talking about the chosen people. The chosen people, the nations. We ain't the chosen people, but we're chosen from before the foundation of the earth because he died for all men 
that would accept him. So, Abram was obedient, going to the place offered up uh, and, and offering up his only begotten, and then obeying to the point that he believed that his son would be resurrected. That was a big thing. It wasn't just that he took his son and was willing to kill him. He recognized that he was coming back. He told them, I'm coming back with my son. We will come back. And this is definitely an Old Testament picture of a coming Messiah that only a person that is completely willfully blinded themselves could not gather from the Torah. And that's whoever writing Hebrew, he's trying to tell him. He's like, look at this picture, just like I did with you this morning. Look at this picture back here in Genesis. And now, don't you see that Christ fulfilled all this stuff? He did all these things. We can look, I mean, they're around there. And we can look at the, you know, you erase my picture of Golgotha and whatever. They're like a couple hundred yards apart. Mount Moriah, where this altar is, and where Golgotha is, the Calvary, where Christ is killed. They're just a couple hundred yards apart. They're right there, stone's throw. It says that, that Abraham looked up and he sees the ram caught in the thicket. Where's the ram in the thicket? It's on Golgotha. Christ looks down from the cross. He's looking down at the temple. He doesn't need the temple anymore. He is the temple. He's making a new temple. Right there on Mount Moriah. He looked up, there was a ram caught in the thicket. Jesus looks down on the place. Either he's right there at the altar when he's dying on the cross, or he's the altar's here and he's on Golgotha looking down. And either way, they're within a couple hundred yards of each other, and he is the ram that's caught in the thicket. He is the sacrifice that would be provided. He's it. The Lord will provide. It shall be provided. He's the it. So he looks down. And like I told you, that, that altar still today, you can look it up. You can look it up online, really, um, but you can't hardly find pictures of the inside part of the uh, Dome of the Rock. They're real secretive about that. But you can't actually get tours of that, but you've got you to gotta pay dearly. The Muslims are guarding that right now. So the Rams on Golgotha, the place God provides. And I venture to guess, it'd be pretty easy to guess what day of the year is this. What day do you reckon this is that Isaac's fixing to be sacrificed here? It, it's... Uh, yeah, it's probably Passover. Yeah, it's probably Passover. So, I mean, God, if you look in the Bible, anytime you see a date, and there's not a date affiliated with the Scripture, so that's kind of a speculation on our part. But generally speaking, if you see a date in the Bible on about this day of this month of this year, you can pretty much guess it's one of the feasts. And in this particular case, I believe it's Passover. So this leads us to what we're going to do today, which is communion. I want you to go to Hebrews 13. Back to Hebrews. Hebrews 13. If we look at Hebrews, we can see again that the writer is trying to point these people that they, they know the Torah, they understand the Torah, but somehow they're having, they're having a struggle, having faith that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he keeps showing them Jesus in the Old Testament. Keeps showing how he was demonstrated there and how he is, he's lining all this stuff up some people call you, a, uh, you might call him a micromanager. Because he's like, uh, Abraham, I want you to go to this place. And Abraham starts going, not this place. This place. Okay, he works on this place. I want you to take your son. Not that son. I want you to take Isaac, your only son. Your only son, the one I promised you. Okay, take Isaac. I want you to take, you know, whatever. Whatever he tells him. He's a micromanager, yes. Because it's got to be in the right place. It's got to be in the right place. Because it has to line up what's coming in the future. So that the Jews can see that this happened back here, 
for us to be able to see that Jesus is the Messiah because he fulfills all these things. Jesus is the one who was promised, and then he came, and then he did all these things. He fulfilled so many prophecies that the odds of him not being the Messiah are so far astronomical that they're not even possible. He is the Messiah. So Hebrews 13, if you start at verse 10 right there, it says, we have an altar. He's, it, it's, he's kind of tying it back together. And we've skipped all of chapter 12. We'll, we'll have time to get back to it. But uh, he skips all, I'm skipping the end of 11 and, and a lot of 12. There's so much stuff going on there, and we'll get to it in time. But here we see about him talking about this altar again. For we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Who are the people outside the gate? They're the sinners, man. The super righteous, they're the ones inside the sanctuary. But the sinners, he died outside the gate for the sinners. That would be uh, you and me. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So we're fixing to do communion, and we have to look at a scripture like this to remember the point. Communion slash Passover, communion based on Passover. And I've told you that, and you know that, and you've heard that. And we're going to read a part of that in Luke today. But um, first we have to look at this thing, this altar. It says that those that have this altar, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. What's the altar? The, the super righteous are inside sprinkling blood on stuff and doing the stuff inside the, the, you know, the holy priesthood and all that stuff. They're working inside the tabernacle. But we're meeting outside with the Savior who saved us from our sins. We're not serving an earthly religion or an earthly religious system, but we serve the Messiah. The other way is this machine that had taken over these people's thinking and all he could think of is kind of like... Um, I don't want to slight Catholicism. I know some people have that in their past, but it's kind of like Catholicism works where there's all these uh, ways of doing things, but people can do all these things, lighting candles and sprinkling babies and, and the, the getting up and the kneeling down and the, the way they do things. There's nothing inherently wrong with it maybe, but they get so tied up in doing these things that they forget what they're doing the things for. They, they're, they're acting like the priesthood inside the tabernacle rather than the one who recognizes himself the guilty sinner that stands before the Messiah and goes, man, without you, I have no hope. And so they're, they're, they're going through rote um, actions that have no satisfaction when it comes to the Savior. Jesus suffered outside the gate. He suffered outside the sanctuary, the t uh, temple, and not only that, outside of the city. In fact, his blood, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, was cast on the ground and trampled underfoot by men. And it says, what kind of wrath would we endure from God if we're willing to do that? Or what would we be do? So, just like the lambs and bulls, they were burned outside the gate, it said. Leviticus 4.21 and 16.27, if you want to look those up. But after they sacrificed it, they got the blood. They took all the pile of mess, and it says they burned it outside the the gate of the 
where the people were. You can't have a bunch of dead animals and a, a, you know, laying around and then these people are living in there. You're going to have disease. They took them outside the camp. They took them outside the gate and disposed of them there. This Valley of Hinnom right here is that picture where they, where they would have cast these dead bodies, where they would have dumped out all the blood of all these sacrifices. It was outside of the town. Well, you don't want the, I mean, you know how it is. I don't know if you've ever hunted anything. Man, the flies are there like that, the mess, the odor. You want it outside of where you live. And Jesus says, come meet me out there. You're not good enough to come into the temple. Come meet me out there. I'll meet you out there. That's where I'm at. I'll meet you outside the temple. You don't have to be in here to accept Christ. I'll meet you where you are. You're full of sin and wicked, and I'll meet you right there. You just bring it to me. Bring it to me outside the gate. So in doing that, uh, well, in doing that, he comes to make everything about all of the ancient Jewish practices reasonable. He came to complete the law, and he does so. He goes through the things. They inspect him, and they do all those things, just like they did with the lamb three days and they hang him on the cross and they sacrifice him and they do all the things just like they would have treated the lamb and he satisfies all those things he completes the law for us so that he is the perfect sacrifice again 13 20 and 21 it says may the god of peace who brought up our lord jesus from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant make you complete in every good work to do his will working in you what is well pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be glory forever and ever Again, it's that making you complete, where he framed the world out of nothing. It says that the, when the world, and I, if you're here Wednesday, I, I mentioned this, but when the world was created on the sixth day, it was complete and lacked nothing. It was ready for operational service. When man was created on the, on the uh, sixth day, he was created operational, ready for service. He was, com he was a fully formed human being, ready to put into action whatever it is God's will was for him to do. When you accept Christ and you're a new creation, you are completely framed, ready to do action for his service. When people ask you, or when you go to give someone the gospel, and you say, well, I was going to tell them something, but I just don't feel like I'm, I'm just not ready yet. Maybe if I read the Bible, you're completely framed, ready for action. You're made complete in every good work to do his will. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you know everything you need to know to help someone else understand their need for a Savior. I was a sinner, lost in my sins and trespasses. And then I found Christ, or he found me, and he saved me. That's, that's an easy gospel right there. You could do that, right? Well, how do I pray? Jesus saved me. That's how. You're lost and you're doomed. How do I pray? Jesus saved me. You have it. It's in you. You've been made complete. You have everything you need uh, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. This obedience that brings faithfulness, that's the key. With certain offerings, the altar, the sacrifices, and the offer were all closely tied together, the offered. So the altar itself, the sacrifice, and the one that makes the offering, they're all closely tied together. And in case of some offerings, for instance, Passover, you actually partook of part of the offering. You actually ate part of it right we had the lamb and then it, we see the lamb we kill it and it dies on our behalf and then we eat it we take part in the offering we dispose of the rest brought by burning so uh, we do the same thing every time we take communion we get the same picture 
And it says right here how that works. It says, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Christ reminds us that he will himself take all of our guilt with him on the cross, and we can share in his sacrifice by taking the elements. He said, do this in, remembrance, do this in remembrance of me. We also share in his sufferings. We share in his sufferings in the way that as we live in this world, but not of this world, people think that we're strange. People think that we're different. But he says to share in my body and share in my blood, and we do that when we take communion. So by our holy living, living separate from the world, we share in the sacrifices as well by, uh, another way we share in his suffering is by giving him, it says, the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, and also doing good and sharing and with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. It said, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, then how can I please God? It says, right, here's one way. It says, uh, do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifice, God is well pleased. Well, there's a way. I can witness to others. I can care for the widow and the orphan. I can love my neighbor as myself. I can love my God with my whole body, soul, spirit, and mind. Those are ways. We have ways to share in that. Like I said, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Abraham's faithfulness gives us a point of reference, a remembrance of the fact that God from eternity past has a desire to be reconciled with men. Um, over and over in the Bible, he makes picture after picture after picture of Christ coming in the future. And so that way there, it gives us a hope, a reliance on these things that we read in the past, that they will come true in the future. And what we see here in the New Testament, we can rely on this to know that in the future comes revelations when we will all be with him in a bodily form somehow in heaven in the future. We can know that because he's already done it. Oh, he's done it more than once. He's done it with Noah. He's done it with Moses. He's done it with Abraham. He's done it with Christ. He's doing what he says he will do all throughout time. And we have his word to rely on that uh, we know that he's going to do again in the future what he's done in the past. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. But with faith, you can have an impact on history, even if it's just your own family. It might be your, it might be your family. It might be nations. You know, you think about a guy like Billy Graham. With faith, he decided to go and be an evangelist to the nations, and he was successful in that. And he just put his trust in God that God would open doors, and he did. But God can certainly use you no matter what you got in the past. I mentioned this last week, and I know a lot of people think, well, I have this guilt or I have this overhanging stuff from the past because I did this thing and I don't want anybody to know about this thing and God used the harlot uh, Rahab the harlot he can use you if you've been a harlot in the past you've lived loosely he can use you God used Jacob the liar have you been a liar have you been a manipulator have you worked everything to your benefit and to the to the the disadvantage of other people God can use you he'll use you maybe you should become a used car salesman but he can use you in that he can use you it doesn't matter. He can use Noah who, who fell into drunkenness there after the, after the flood. He used him anyway. He used him before that. He used him after that. He was still a preacher of righteousness, the Bible says. People fall into bad things. People make bad calls. They sin. But that's what Christ came for. He can use you despite your failures if by faith you act in obedience to his word. All those people... All these sinners of the past, they acted in obedience to God's word. And in fact, he used them. Um, and we read about them today. So that should give you hope. Psalm 106, 31. 
It was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. This guy says a prayer over the Jews who were sinning against God. And this guy stands up and gives a prayer over them and asks God to have mercy on them. And it says that because he did that, it was accounted to him as righteousness to all generations forevermore. That's in Psalms. That's not in the New Testament. It's in Psalms. So how does this help me today? We always want that. We, the, you know, we've got the millennials in here. What is this, how does this help me? Um, that's most, you know, one of the bigger lines of this generation. What's in it for me, you know? Um, I guess the way it helps you is this. Not everything's about you. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you that. Some things are about God. In fact, most things are about God and his righteousness. When we, when we seek his righteousness, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added. This is how it applies to you this week. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added to, unto you. What things? This faith. This faith that you want, you want this faith. You want to know that you're stable in your faith. You want to have confidence and boldness in evangelizing other people and speaking the truth and, and, and that sort of thing when it comes to the gospel. And you can gain that by seeking him first in his righteousness. And then these things can be added to you. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and uh, come, Jed, and, and uh, we're going we're gonna to have a song. Man, I'm going to ask you to hand out the elements. And then we're going to talk about... Uh, partaking in the sacrifice of Christ.